Well, in many things in life, uh, sticking with the basics is very, very important. Uh, you just see, if you're a sports fan, you see that all the time, how uh, teams that do the fundamentals well or stick with the basics well often end up don't making a lot of bad mistakes. Let's maybe put something in all of our world of sticking with the basics. How about driving on the right side of the road? That's always helpful, isn't it? Now, if you come from another country and you drive on the left side of the road, we'll put it driving on the correct side of the road. The same is true, even more so, for the fundamental basic truths of the Christian faith. Uh, This is so important today. We live in a hyper-information culture, and uh, there's tons of information out there. And did you know a lot of it's false? There's a funny scene in the, if you've seen the show, The Office, where uh, Michael says, I'm getting my information off the internet so you know you're getting all of the best information. And it's, a, it's just a joke because there's a lot of bad stuff out there. That includes a lot of the stuff that passes itself off as Bible teaching out there or things that are teaching that is in regards to the Christian faith. There's a lot of stuff that's out there that is simply false. The uh, book of 2 Peter was written or dictated. It was very common practice in the ancient world. You would dictate to someone. Uh, kind of interesting thinking about that, maybe sort of walking around the room or something like that. Maybe you've heard the term of an amanuensis. That's someone who would take down the dictation. And it was written by the apostle Peter. And it's known as 2 Peter because it's the second letter that we have from him in the Bible. We know from 1 Peter that he wrote his letters when he was much older, probably about 40 years after he walked with Jesus, probably 60, 65 A.D. And, and Peter now can say, after walking with Jesus as a young man and then basically pastoring and you know, sharing the gospel with people for the last 40 years, that he has seen a lot. And this is the the voice and the words and the heart of a man who uh, knows his end is near. He's going to die very, very uh, shortly. And the two letters most scholars believe are written only about a year apart. Uh, Peter's concern is clear and he has good reason for it. Any pastor would have a good reason for it is that False teachers, and he was you know, one of those guys who went around from church to church, as the Apostle Paul did, and, and false teachers were continually popping up in the churches, and they had all kinds of new and, and twisted teaching. So when we think of his letters, some people like to put it this way, that First Peter, uh, the, the issue he was writing was the persecution that was coming from the outside, the, from the Roman Empire, from the, from the authorities, the people who wanted to kill off Christianity, if you will, even blaming them for, for some things that were not, were not theirs. And Second Peter, really the, the problems are not from the outside, but they're actually inside the church what we might call uh, confessing Christians, people who would say they're followers of Jesus, but they're really not bringing false teaching uh, into the church. Now, some people say that Second Peter is kind of a negative book. I don't agree with that, and maybe it's just the way my, my thinking is. I think that anything that points out error and points me to the truth I take as a positive. So I'm very thankful for that because it's very easy to listen to something and go, yeah, that really makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And then a guy like Peter comes along and says, well, let's look at it in light of the entirety of the scripture. And then you think, yeah, 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 that's not exactly exactly right. Uh, Today, many people have moved from the truth of the gospel to a false gospel Some might say it's a watered-down gospel, but anything that's not the true gospel is no gospel at all. And and so a lot of people are are moving more to a gospel that's um, all about you, and that's really no gospel at all. Now, we should be gracious when well-informed, secondary-issue agreements 
arise. Let's use a classic example, baptism. I happen to believe in, in baptism by immersion. So you, so you dunk a person in that. Now, I have the unusual thing. I, I do believe that you should really only be baptized once, um, immersed once. So, but I have the unusual uh, distinction of being baptized three times. I was baptized as a baby. I actually got saved in the ocean and, and, and sort of baptized myself. But that doesn't pass the criteria of being baptized in the community of God's people. So then I was baptized again uh, in the ocean and uh, up here in New Jersey, uh, down the shore at the beach. And, and so I was baptized there. So I do believe in baptism by immersion. You take someone, you dunk them in the water and back up. Some people believe in infant baptism. I would think of uh, our Presbyterian friends. And um, I always promise my Presbyterian friends when we get to heaven and we find out that baptism by dunking was right and baptism by babies was not, I won't brag, I won't boast, I won't say a word. But you know what? I, I have no problem with my Presbyterian friends who believe in baptizing babies. You may I just think there's not that many Christians as there is in the world, true followers of Jesus. I'm, I'm willing to have that discussion with them, but I'm not going to divide with them. Now, there's some people who believe that when you baptize a baby, and Presbyterians don't, when you baptize a baby, that's when they become saved. That's when they become born again. That is not taught in the Bible. So on that, I will disagree with them you know, very much so. But on sec some secondary issues, we have to be, we have to be uh, gracious. However, we have to be really careful about uh, something that's sort of around today is sometimes a lot of followers of Jesus want to be tolerant. And sometimes we're a little too tolerant because nobody ever wants to be thought of today as being judgmental. They don't want to ever thought of, of being you know, you know, contentious about certain types of issues. And if we're not careful, certain gospel truths are going to get lost. For example, in much of the church today, what we call the social gospel and, and, or social justice, which is very different than the way the Bible portrays it, we should probably talk about that some point in time in the future, um, that has given way or taken over the gospel of what Jesus said, repenting and believing the good news. So we don't, we don't want that to, to happen at all. Um, how, do, how does this kind of stuff happen? Well, people uh, think that, well, you know, if we all just do a few good deeds, God will be pretty happy, that's enough. And we don't want to face the fact that we are sinners in need of a savior. People don't like to hear that they're sinners at all. Um, I don't know why. I, I mean, we all know that we're sinners. And for me personally, I can just say that when I'm, uh, God brings it to my attention that I'm a sinner, I take it as an invitation to more intimacy with him. And I also take it that to see, it helps me see that he loves me more. I mean, really, I'd have been done with me a long time ago if I was him, but he hangs in there. He hangs in there with me. So how do you know if you're in a false teacher environment? If Peter were here, he might give us a few things. He's going to give us several things throughout this letter. Um, various examples we could give. I think it's very rare that you'll find all of these in one place. If you find all of these in one place, boy, that's, that's, that's quite an unusual place. Uh, one thing that you know is you're really in a false teacher place is they deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. They'll just say, he was a good man, he was a good teacher, uh, you know, decent guy. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Um, big uh, in, the, in the United States is um, what we might call hyper-grace talk. Uh, they talk about how God loves you. That's true, although I think for people who don't believe in Jesus. I don't know that it makes much of a difference to them. They're like, a big deal. He loves everybody. But you do have a lot of people talking about kind of hyper grace where it doesn't really matter how you live because God's going to forgive you anyway. I don't know how you deal with all the stuff in the Bible that tells you what to do and tells you how to live, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But, um, and there's very little mention of sin. 
Very little mention of sin. Now, what you find in a lot of those churches is there's a lot of immorality. And it's not surprising because the power of the word is not at work in God's people or in the people, whether they are God's people or not, I don't know. Um, You have other places where there's a heavy, unusually heavy emphasis, a constant emphasis, every week emphasis on, on money and healing. So uh, not, it's, it's really less about Jesus and it's about uh, just, well, you know, if you have enough faith, you'll give money and you'll get rich. And if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. In a lot of those environments, uh, the pastor is the Lord's anointed and he'll receive a word from God and give it to the congregation as if it is God uh, speaking himself or he gets a vision directly uh, from God and you, you can't really question it. Um, others, uh, very common, again, getting sort of in that social justice kind of thing is more about good, talking more about good deeds than Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with doing good deeds. Please don't get me anything wrong. But, but the church is really, we are the people of God. We are God's people. We are to come to glorify uh, the name of the Lord Jesus. And they will use expressions something like this. Well, we're bringing the love of Jesus to people. But they really don't like the talk to, about the cross and the resurrection and putting your trust in Jesus because they'll say that makes people feel uncomfortable. But that's not really the gospel. So Peter writes to bring um, these people that he's writing to back to the truth. He's, he's writing to give them certainty. And that's going to be a big topic in Peter's letter here, that you have a certainty, that you have an assurance that you are truly one of God's people. Because it's easy to think that you're God's people and then all of a sudden you get into an environment where you're thinking like, well, maybe I'm not. That's been a big thing in our church here. Uh, If you're not from our church, we're glad you joined us tonight. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you joined us tonight. But a lot of people in our church will say, when I came here, I thought I was Christian. But then when I heard the Bible taught, I realized I really wasn't. I just... I kind of took on that name, but I really wasn't a follower of Jesus. And so the series that we're calling this with uh, Peter is the hope of God's people. The hope of God's people. And tonight is just an introduction, and we've called the sermon Great Gifts from God. Great Gifts from God. And, and, And when these gifts are received, will keep us all on the right side of the road and will be able to help develop in us that certainty and that assurance. But we're going to need a lot more information on that than we're going to get tonight. So 2 Peter 1.1, uh, Simon Peter, very common in the ancient world uh, to have uh, two names. Uh, Simon was his original name. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him. It sort of means like little rock. So uh, one of the things you notice about uh, Peter is that a rock we think of being stable. Peter was a very unstable man and and God made him into a stable man. Uh, Not all immediately, but it took over time. Uh, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. Uh, Another version says uh, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing or of equal privilege with ours, okay, so he says, have obtained like precious faith with us by, or you could say through, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So after introducing himself, Simon Peter, Peter calls himself a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that term bondservant is an example of an English translation because of world events, and I understand why the translators would do this. It, it's, it's, really, it's really cleaned up. The term bond servant is more accurately translated bond slave. Bond slave. And so what is a bond slave? A bond slave 
is a willing slave, is someone who, who loves their master so much they want to serve them for the rest of their life. Now, let's be very, very clear. Uh, the, I was about to do a message on the Bible's view of slavery right when George Floyd broke, and, and it just, the stuff that I had prepared, I just thought that's, it's, it's going to seem like I'm rather insensitive to what had happened, so I didn't want to talk about it then. But the Bible does not endorse the kind of slavery that we are in discussion about uh, right now. And, and it's not the point that Peter's making. Remember, the scripture says that all people are created in the image of God. And so in that sense, there is some inner beauty in every single person, in every single person. So maybe tonight you're a person, and I know with, with young people, and it should be with Christians too, as Christians, our identity should be in Jesus. With young people, a lot of young people are really searching for their identity. And, and all I can tell you is this, that God says that there is part of his identity in you that he considers to be um, beautiful, wonderful, acceptable. Maybe, maybe there's things about yourself that you just hate. But God says, no, 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 I, 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 don't, I don't see you that way at all. I see you as, as made in my image. Now, in the, in the first century, a lot of people, not in the first century, even in, ancient, in the ancient world, a lot of people would be in debt to someone. And so what they would do was they would have no way of paying off their debt. So usually the way it was in the Bible is they would, if it was a large debt, they would take a six-year period and they would work for you for six years to pay off the debt. And that's the way it worked. And in the seventh year, they would go free. Now sometimes, and it was totally voluntary, totally voluntary, you could say, uh, you know what? I really like working for this guy, this master. I don't really want to go out back out into the world. I want to stay here. I, I've got a good place to live. I'm, I'm, I'm fed well. I'm, I'm really well taken care of. I like the work. My family is secure here. I want to become, for life, a bond slave. I want to stay working for, for this master, for this boss, this employer, for the, for the rest of my life. Now, in our age, you, you could never picture it would be like seven years. My goodness, you're kidding me. People don't work that long. A lot of times people don't work that long for people. But, you know, I, my dad worked for the same company for 46 years. That was very, very common years ago in, in our country and then what they would do would they'd put him up against a, a, a post or something like that or a doorway and then they'd they'd put a thing called an all through his ear and so kind of like an earring he would have so if you know the parents don't ask me about earrings and tattoos really so don't try to use the bible for that stuff i'll be like don't ask me that question mom uh, but so he would do that so it would be like you could know who he he belonged to so why would peter use that term for Jesus. The reason is that Peter is, is saying that he is a purchased man. He has been purchased by the cross of Christ. He's been purchased by uh, the blood of Jesus, and he is more than willing to be a bond slave, to be a willing servant of Jesus, serve the Lord Jesus the rest of his life. So for Peter and for any follower of Jesus, we'll use the term servant over the term slave. The term servant is a term of humility and honor in serving the Lord. That's why we call the volunteers in our church servants. It is a, it is a term of honor to serve the Lord Jesus in Humility. I think it's also one of the ways that Peter identifies with all of us that we are all to be willing servants of Jesus Christ together. Now, maybe you don't want to be called a servant. 
Maybe you sat in church here and you thought, I, I can't believe they call them servants. I don't like that. Or you're just, you're a new servant here. We have some new people who want to get involved. And, and they're just like, well, I, you know, servants, you want to call me a servant? I guess that's okay. Uh, you know, and you'll know you're a servant when you, how you react when you're treated like one, by the way, no charge for that one. So if you get all angry and all in a tizzy, you're really not a servant then. But, but if you're just like, well, you know what? That's okay. It, it, it it's fine. I personally love being called a servant. Now you say, why would you love being called a servant? Well, let me just give you a couple guys in the Bible that, that it, that's called a servant. Uh, Moses, Joshua, King David, some of the prophets, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. Jesus is named the servant uh, of the Lord. Um, all willing to be called servants. So, if you want to call me a servant or, or you're a servant and you don't mind being called a servant, man, you are in good company. Now, I, let me just tell you something I've noticed about servants. Those people who are bond servants, that are willing servants, you can tell who they are. They serve with joy. They serve with Holy Spirit fire. Uh, most of the servants at our church serve every other week, and they're like, they don't like that. They're like, I don't want to serve every other week. I want to do it every week, man. What's, what's the deal with that? Those people that are doing it out of compulsion or maybe obligation or they feel like they have to do it or, or they're on community service, <laughs> for whatever the reason, tends to be a lot less joy. So after calling himself a bond slave or a bond servant, Peter refers to himself as an apostle. Now, it's very interesting. I don't know. But maybe he says bond servant first because that's more important to him. That 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 is his real identity. The other is his calling. Being apostle is his calling, but his identity is a servant of Jesus Christ. And he tells us he's an apostle, I think really simply to tell us that the authority of this letter is from God. In other words, this letter that he's going to write to us or we're going to study the Lord Jesus has appointed him and the Holy Spirit has directed him to write about the things he's going to write about, false teachers and other things. Uh, practically speaking, I think, I think there's something really important here. Peter balances humility, I'm a bondservant, with leadership. I'm an apostle. You see, to him, he knows, like the Lord Jesus, the two go hand in hand. Now, some leaders are a complete pushover, and they call it humility. That's not humility. That's being a pushover. If, you're, if you're, God has called you to be a leader, you have to lead. That means that you're going to, at times, make decisions that are unpopular. That means that, at times, I hate to say it, people are going to stab you in the back. That just comes with the turf. And then God wants you to be humble about it. Not all in a knot about every little thing that everybody, everybody says. But some leaders, they just, whatever people say, okay, 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 even if everybody's running around like chickens with their heads cut off, and they call it humility. Other leaders are completely heavy-handed, and they call it leadership. That's not leadership. That's not leadership. That's being heavy-handed. Peter has it right. I'm a servant who leads. Servant leadership. Uh, to demonstrate that, uh, Peter, how he's just really a servant, he, he reveals one of a great biblical truth. And if you have a pen, circle this in your Bible, please. He says, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. That is a massively important statement. Massively important. And we're, it's, we're still like, you're like, we're still in verse one, I know. He, he's teaching something so important, saying that, all who have repented and believed, 
all who have become born again, and what I mean by that is the Spirit of God has come to and brought your spirit alive. I don't mean that you're some you know, judgmental spiritual jihadist you know, telling everybody what's wrong with them. That's what a lot of people think that means. But what he's saying is that all who believe in Jesus, put their trust in Jesus, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, he's saying we all have direct access to God. So what is he saying? I'm a bondservant just like you. Just like you. We all have direct access to God. We sometimes say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's nobody up here and there's nobody down here. Now, why would people say that? Well, where do we get it? Places like this. Peter's essentially saying the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The idea that the clergy stands head and shoulders above the rest. Now, don't forget, I'm clergy, I'm Pastor Jim, right? But the idea that clergy stands head and shoulders above the rest produces absolutely, positively disastrous results. Disastrous results. All you got to do is read the newspaper, unbelieving people get this. When people tell me how upset they are about the clergy abuse that exists in our country, I'm like, man, I bet you I'm more angry about it than you are. I think it's a a terrible, terrible thing because what happens is is it, it gives them a power that God never gave them. There's a difference between the authority God gives leadership in the church and power. There's a big difference. But when the clergy is above the people, they have the power and it produces in a lot of other people, in a lot of people, an inactivity. But we are all to do the work of, of the ministry. So the biblical teaching is that all true believers share the same blessings. There are no second class citizens of heaven. Remember, James told us that when, he, when we, we learned it you know, a few months ago when he said, listen, you, know, you, don't, you don't play favorites with the seating and stuff like that. Now, listen, we, we might. You might, you might. There might not be a seat here in, the, in this room and, and you might say to someone, you know, a guy you know, and might say, hey, you know, there's a woman coming in with a walker or a cane or a gentleman or something like that. Could, could you give your seat up for them? That's, that's a different thing. That's a, that's a different thing. There's no second-class citizens in, in heaven. Now, this is important also ethnically. Peter is a Jew and probably writing to Gentiles. There's no ethnic barriers in the kingdom of God. There are none Zero. Zero. Now, we have to acknowledge there are ethnic barriers in our world. For us to to be out-of-touch Christians and pretend that that doesn't exist, you can lose your audience. You can lose your audience very quickly. But for us, as brothers and sisters, for us as citizens of heaven, there are no ethnic boundaries We love ethnicity, hard word for me to say. Um, We we love the differences of cultures. I I love the way different people have, you know, different foods and different modes of dress and different music and different customs. Oh, I love all that stuff. But there's no barrier to us worshiping, loving God together. I I don't even have to speak the same language with another Christian to love them as my as my brother and sister. And so what he said, Peter's saying with this expression, we all have full status in the kingdom. Everybody has full status. Every follower of Jesus is a sinner saved by grace. Now, do we respect the office that God has given to leaders in the church? Yes. Yes. But... We all have to realize that leaders in the church are no more than sinners saved by grace. So all followers have what he called and have obtained like precious faith with us. Well, how did we obtain it? 
It was a gift. It was a gift. It, it, salvation is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's nothing to brag about. It's not of your works. It is a gift of God. The terminology when you've obtained actually means you received it by lot. Almost like, you know, hey, give it to that guy. Give it to that guy. Give it to that guy. You know, God giving this divine gift sheerly out of the grace of God. Now, each week here at Calvary Chapel, we make it an effort. I know at least whenever I'm the guy who's preaching, I make an effort uh, to call people who are not walking with God, who are walking away from God, to turn to God, look at the cross, and put their trust in Jesus instead of themselves. But I also, at the same time, and you should too, we did it last Sunday, pray that God gives them the capacity to do that. If you're praying on your way to church or before the service or the night before or the morning of or something like that, pray that God would give people the capacity, the desire to put their trust in Jesus. All right, I know we're still in verse 1. There's a lot here. He says, we receive this faith. Okay, we receive this like precious faith by or through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So first thing he says to us, the source of God's saving righteousness. What What does that mean? He saves us from our sins. He gives us his righteousness. It, our righteousness that we have is not in and of ourselves. It is a received righteousness. Jesus takes our sin upon himself on the cross, and then we are given his righteousness. And so he's saying here that, that the source of our righteousness, Peter's saying, is Jesus Christ. It's all Jesus Christ's righteousness that we have. That's why we are equal. That, that's why there is, there's, there's you know, no ethnic barriers. That's why we are equal, because we have all been given that righteousness from Jesus to us. Now, we live it out we try to live out that righteousness. That might be different, but the righteous given to us is the same. Now, righteousness has several uses in the word of God. Often, the way it's, and the way it's used here, is it's how God makes us right with him. It's how God makes us right with him. Again, he takes our sin, puts it on Jesus, takes Jesus' righteousness, and gives it to us. We don't have this righteousness. We don't have it. We don't earn this righteousness. How do we get it? It's given. Uh, theologians call it imputed. Imputed righteousness given to all who put their trust in Jesus. Now, second, there's a debate. Who is this term our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about God the Father and Jesus? Or is he just talking about Jesus? Well, actually, the grammar leaves little doubt. Uh, Peter is saying that Jesus Christ is God and Savior. You say, well, how do you know? Well, let's look at what he says here again. He says, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The key to understanding it here is the word our. Our is what we call a pronoun. All the students are like, oh, no, we're back in school. It's a pronoun. And there's only one pronoun. So when he says our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that indicates He's only talking about one person, 
Jesus Christ. So he says that Jesus is both God and Savior. Now, some people will say, oh, 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 no, 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 no. These are people, people will say this to you who don't know anything about the Bible. They will say, or don't know very little, say, the Bible never says that Jesus is God. It never says it. Let's just go through a few examples. Talking about Jesus, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. All through chapter 1, he's referring to Jesus as the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So Jesus was with God, and he was God. Remember the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three are God. The three are one, and the one are three. John 1.18, same question, same chapter. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son. Now, some translators uh, have translated that, who is himself God. Now you say, well, why do they translate it different? There's so many manuscripts, so it, and, and, and so they go by that. Not just They won't just take one. They just take, there's reliability. That's a whole study into itself. But the only begotten Son of God, again, some verses say, who is God himself, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Another version says the only God who's, who is in the Father's, at the Father's side, he has revealed him. John 20, 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. That's what he said to Jesus. He called Jesus my Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5, the Apostle Paul says, Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. Other versions say who is God over all, because if you're over all, then you must be God. The eternally blessed God. He calls Jesus the eternally blessed God. Amen. Titus 2, 13 looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One hour, one pronoun. Hebrews 1.8. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. This is God the Father talking to God the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So God says to his Son, you're God, and you're the ruler of the kingdom. Colossians 2.9. For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Another version, God's nature or God's deity dwells in a body. God dwells in a body. There's plenty more. Well, so much for the people who say the Bible never said Jesus is God. Maybe not the way they want it said, but it certainly says it, and the people in the ancient world understood that. And as we just saw on Good Friday, so did the religious leaders. And that's why they had Jesus killed. Okay, finally we get to verse 2. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in, some versions say through, the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we have to look at something a little different here. Here, we're talking about God the Father and Jesus. You say, how do you know? Because of the use of the word of, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So now he separated them. Before, the word, the word of separates the two parties. Before there was no separation, it was talking about one party. Now, once you have been a Bible reader for a while. Now, here's the, here's the thing for those of you who are new at the faith. The, the key to maturity is to continue being a Bible reader. A lot of people stop reading the Bible. They only pick up their Bible when they go to church or they keep it in the back of their car. And you can tell because it's all beaten by the sun down. <laughs> and, and so... But maybe that's their church Bible. I don't want to be judgmental on that. But, but pe once people have been Bible readers for a while, 
there's something that you have to be very careful of, and I have to be very careful of it. And it's careful of skipping over the introductory verses to the what we call the epistles or, or, the, or the letters of the Bible or the books of the Bible, the letters of the apostle to various churches, to various people. It's easy to think after a while. Now, this is for those of you who've been Christians for a while. I, I know to those who God gives his grace, that's how you can experience his peace. Now, if you're new to the Bible, let me explain something very, very important to you. Uh, grace, charis, is a, is, is very, was a very common greeting. Peace, shalom. You know that word. It even sounds the way to say, ah, shalom, peace. It's always in the Bible, grace and peace. It's not peace and grace. It's grace and peace. But notice Peter prays here in verse 2 that grace and peace would be multiplied to you. That, that you would get it, another version says that you would get it in abundance. So, so what is this? We talk about grace a lot. And, and we talk about different types of grace. So now I'm going to summarize it in a very incomplete fashion. Grace, we'll think of grace here as a resource that God freely gives to undeserving sinners. We often talk about grace as being unmerited. What does that mean? There is nothing you and I did to deserve it. It's just a gift that God gives us. He gives us grace. Now, too often, people only think of grace of forgiveness. But there's all kinds of graces, all kinds of graces. Anytime God is at work in you, which is all the time, there is grace involved. So let me really broaden it out for you. Grace converts. Grace takes a dead spirit inside of you and brings it to life. That's what it means to become born again. And also grace um, sanctifies. What, what does that mean? Sanctification is what we talk about of the process of us becoming more like Jesus. And so, so you, you, maybe, maybe you've, you've been a Christian maybe recently. And your friends come up to you and you go, you know, man, you, you don't curse all the time like you used to, man. And you're like, Wow. And you get in your car and you're like, what's that? It's grace. That's grace. It's sanctifying you. It's making you more like Jesus. But, but there's something else that's very, very important. And Peter wants us to understand it. That's why the apostles wrote these letters to churches. The grace of God is what binds together the family of God. We're bound together by, by grace, the grace of forgiveness, the grace of compassion, the grace of generosity, the grace of servanthood, the grace of service. There's all kinds of different grace that, that bound, binds us together. In fact, if we don't make it an effort to understand the gift of the grace of God, we, we are gracious because God is gracious. We are generous because God is generous. We are loving because God is loving. If we don't understand that these are graced gifts from God, we're going to have a tough time understanding the Christian faith or, and forget about living the Christian life. You're going to think it's, oh, well, you know, it's just about going to church and doing my thing. No, no, not at all. And you're going to have a tough time understanding the Christian faith. And you're going to have a tough time with the letters of the apostles and the teachings of Jesus. So peace, shalom, is the result of grace. More specifically, and, 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 and sort of at its you know, bottom line level, is, is that peace 
is the result of being made right with God and having the peace and having peace with God as a result of the grace of God. So when you put them together, grace and peace really describe the Christian life. Being made right with God by the offer. He offers his grace. We receive his grace. We put our trust in him as a response to the offer of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And then we grow in grace as we grow to become more like Jesus. I realize the process is not moving as quick along as, as most of us would like, but that's the way it goes. Now, if it went really quickly, then we'd dump Jesus and then we'd be back where we were or worse. Now, what I'm about to say is not popular. It's not popular, but the New Testament is very clear. A profession of faith without a pursuit of faith is not faith. The, the grace of faith, the grace of the pursuit of faith is a gift from God. It is part of the change that he puts in us. And so if you are claiming to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus and you're not pursuing your faith, there's a problem with that. And, and, and you need to be more diligent in your spiritual disciplines because that's how God, God imparts faith. You read your Bible, you pray, you come to church, you serve, you're, you're, you, you hang out with other Christians, you're sharpening one another in the faith. That's, that's how he does it. The New Testament is clear. And this is, this, is, this, is an, this is a way we can change our area, guys, really. A one-time profession of faith that does not change the way that we live is not faith. And there are so many people that are running around this area in which we live in and said, well, I, the guy said you can know today that you're going to go to heaven if you come down to the front here and pray this prayer with me. And they go, I did it. I'm in. And you got to tell them, you know what? That guy was not being truthful with you. That guy was not being truthful with you. If it hasn't produced any desire to pursue Christ, any desire to pursue faith, any change in the way you live, it's not true faith. Now, you say, Pastor Jim, now you're scaring me. Now you're scaring me. How do we get there? If Peter were here, you know what he would say? I'm so glad you asked that question. Thank you, Jim, for making everybody feel bad. Now let me take over. So we're going to let Peter take over. Look at verse 2 again. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, you're going to get more of it. How? In or through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Right here, in verse 2, Peter gives us one of the main themes of his letter. Knowledge. Knowledge. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. Simply, he's telling us we get more grace, which then gives us more peace through personally, relationally, intellectually, intimately knowing God and Jesus Christ. How does that happen? It happens through the power of the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. Now, this is something that's very, very important for us to understand. The Bible writers don't separate the head and the heart. Now, a lot of times I will say that's got to make the journey from your head to your heart because a lot of things are in our head, but they're not in our heart. But they don't separate the head and the heart when discussing our spiritual growth. Why? They're saying that we know the Lord, 
in our heads. We know things about him, but we experience him in our heart. And so just little things like, you know, today I was driving down this road and, and I just noticed that, you know, it was like I looked at my speedometer and it said it was 71 degrees and I noticed there was these yellow flowers that were kind of budding on this street that I was driving down and I was just like, oh Lord, that's just so beautiful. So what had happened? Something that I knew had just journeyed into my heart. So I knew it and I was experiencing the Lord in the process. And Peter's going to tell us we constantly need to be reminded of this and its connection to the practices in our church. So we, we teach the Bible because we want to know about God, but know is a very intimate word. You know, it's used of husbands and wives in the Bible. They know each other in the biblical sense. If you're a kid, ask your parents about that. Uh, so they, they, they know one another. And so it's a very, very intimate thing. And, and it's, it reminds us of our practices in the church. We want to know things about God, but we want to experience things about God. Now, that's why I'll often comment to the people that the singing after the message usually is so much better than it is before the message. Why? Because people are coming in, they're all beaten and battered from the world. They walk in like, oh, I made it. And then God fills their minds and their hearts with him. And then there is an outpouring of, of singing and praise for God. Now, should it be that way? No. Why? Because I found over the years, it's a little different being a pastor. My Sunday mornings are the the, the most unique morning of all my mornings for sure, different than the other six mornings of the week. But before I was a pastor, I would do my best to have a good time alone with God before I came to church. Because that way, when I came to church, I was already warmed up. I was, I was ready to worship. And then when you really worship and you sing before the message, then you're a sponge. I mean, then you're just a complete sponge for the word of God. Jesus agrees. Jesus praying the night before the cross, John 17, 3, he says, and this is eternal life. What does that mean? That means eternal life with God in heaven. That they, He's praying to his Father that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the heart of the gospel. That you would know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who God sent so we could know him. Philippians 3.8, the Apostle Paul writes this, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He gave up all his career. He was a rising star in Judaism. He says, listen, man, I don't need any of that. He was fast-tracking. He'd have been rich. He'd have been, it would have been great for him. He gave it all up, all of it, for the knowledge of God for the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, what? Those things as rubbish. Some of your versions say garbage. Literally, it means dung. That I may gain Christ. All the stuff of this world, he says, listen, <laughs> to know God, way better than having all that other stuff. Way better than have all that stuff. That's a, that's a tough message in, in a materialistic American society in which we live in. Two verses later, Philippians 3.10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings 
being conformed to his death. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. What's the power of his resurrection? That is the power for living and that is the power for eternal life. And he says, and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. What is that? That is growing in grace, in the forgiveness of sins which we have. Also, how do we spot false teachers? Titus 1.16. They profess to know God. Notice he doesn't say they know God. They profess to know God. They say they do. But in works, another version says, but by their actions, they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. They're disqualified for the ministry. Simply put, Peter begins his letter by saying, there is only one way we can experience grace and peace in abundance. That is by coming to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then by growing in our knowledge and relationship with them. Peter is also warning us about false teachers. You see, without the word of God giving you the knowledge of God, without the word of God teaching you about God, what he's done and what he desires for his people, you and I will be easy prey for false teachers. It's like they say in the bank. They don't, they don't teach the people how to, how to spot the real bills. They, teach them how to, they don't teach the people how to spot the counterfeits. They teach them how to spot the real thing. And, and that's what happens. If you don't know the real thing, a counterfeit will come along and you'll buy it. You'll buy it. Today it seems the church is, is in a direction and still heading in a direction as being a church that knows God, yet it is full of immorality. It is full of immorality, full of people making decisions on emotions and feelings, not on the knowledge of God. So many people make decisions doing what's right for themselves and little care for other people. Now, let's just be true and honest about something. It is true that some people have a head knowledge without a heart knowledge. We went through a season of that years ago, 20, 30, 40 years ago, where people based your Christianity on what, how much of the Bible you knew. Well, Satan knows more than all of us. It doesn't mean anything. So, so there was a season of that. So that's where you had this season of very, very loveless, judgmental, um, nasty, ornery Christians. And people are like, I don't want to be like those people. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. But it seems to me, and this is one thing, a mistake we, that the church seems to make. We just, ah, drives me nuts. The pendulum has swung to the other extreme. So you have the extreme over here, knowledge. The Apostle Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, love builds up. So, but the pendulum swings to the other side. I don't know why it doesn't stop in the middle. Stop in the middle. Strike the balance. Now we have many people who are operating on heart feelings without a knowledge of the Bible. If you don't believe me, just listen to Christian radio. You know, a lot of the, the music stations. And you'll hear it. But God wants hearts and heads that are full of the knowledge of God. That will produce an intimate knowledge of the Lord. Plus, there's an added benefit to that. It'll produce in you a life of understanding and practical wisdom. Well, how can you be so sure, Jim, that this knowledge is so important to Peter? Well, just turn with me in your Bible to the very end of the letter. It's only a page. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. 
You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware. Another version says, on your guard, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. What does that mean? One version says from your own stability. Another says from your own secure position, being led away with the error of the wicked or of the lawless. But now he's going to tell us what to do to avoid verse 17 and verse 18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and forever. Another version says, to the day of eternity, amen. Now, this is a technique known as framing. Peter has set the frame. He tells us at the beginning we need knowledge. He tells us at the end we need knowledge. That is the frame. And in the middle, He's going to paint the picture for us. What does that actually look like? You know, this letter could have been written this morning. It really could have. In our culture, truth has become relative. People will tell you, you decide what truth is. I'm sorry, man, but that's just plain silly. (laughs) That, that just lacks logic. I mean, if you, if you want to get to a place, don't you need the address? Don't you need, don't you need the, the route to get there? Now, you may go a lot of different ways to get there. I get it. To get to heaven, there's a lot of, we often say, there's a lot of different ways to get to Jesus. You know, some, some of us took, them, like me, I took the roundabout way. I took the long way. And, uh, you know, that's just it. But while there's many ways to get to Jesus, there's only one way to get to God the Father and only one way to get to heaven, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In, in this same chapter, chapter 1, 2 Peter 1.11, talking about the certainty of making it to heaven, he says, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question, honest question. Soul-searching, not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I really want you to be able to answer this question. Are you certain you're going to heaven? Are you really certain? You say, I don't know, I try to be a good person. See, that's not a good answer. You go by putting your trust in the life of another, the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. He's talking the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have the victory over death? Are you sure you have the victory over death? 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe or who trust in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know you're going to heaven, we might say, and that you may continue to believe, you would continue to trust in the name of the Son of God. Let me ask you, do you know that you're going to heaven? Do you know that you have eternal life? 1 John 1.12 tells us, but as many as received him. I love that word receive. I love it much better than the word accept. Accept is like, yeah, I accept what you're offering me. That to me, I just don't like that. I like it. I'm just going to receive it. Just, just Jesus, just give it to me, man. I'm just going to receive it. That way the action is all upon Jesus, not upon you. I want to receive you as my, my Lord and my Savior and your King. To as many as received him, to them, and the idea is only them, he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, to those who trust Jesus as Lord and Savior and King. It's interesting, to those people who gave the right. Everybody's talking about their rights these days. God says, you want the ultimate right? I'll give you the right, okay, to become a child of God if you simply put your trust in my son. 
how amazing grace is, how easily available it is to us, to those who grab it by faith. As Jesus said, repent, turn to God, believe, put your trust in him. How amazing it is that Peter says, you can have like precious faith with us. That, 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 that you and I can have equal standing before God as an apostle. But that's all because it's a gift. And Jesus is able to offer that gift because he is God become a man. Because he lived a perfect life. Because he died on the cross. And because he rose from the dead. All you and I have to do is receive his grace. Tonight, God is, here it is. Here it is. Forget about accepting it. Forget about earning it. Just receive it. Just receive it and enjoy it. There's more. As we stick with the basics, we'll receive more great gifts from God. And next week, we'll see how you can experience some of these marvelous, wonderful privileges that God gives to all his children. And so I do hope you'll join us. Let's pray.